Can you feel the heat? The heat that is beneath your feet. The flames of judgment and purification burn forever after all. If you listen carefully, you may hear the cries of the guilty as they suffer in anguish. Hear them weeping and groaning, crying out, pleading. You may know some people who are there right now. And know this, that one day you too will join them. After all, the treacherous sins that you have committed against the holy God must be punished. So, today, I urge you to come to confess your wickedness, to repent of your sinfulness. And I can promise you absolution. As long as amends are made, your guilt will be taken away, though your sins really still need to be paid for. And that's only just if you think about it. You need to make up for the wrong things you've done. You need to make up for your sins, either in this life or in the next. So while you may not go to hell, you may not be allowed into heaven right away. You may need to go to a purifying place for a while, which will properly punish you and yet burn away all of your sin. However, there's something that you can do to make things better for yourself eventually. If you do good penance now, you can save yourself a lot of pain later. And one of these good things that you can do is to increase your giving to the church. We're going to take a, a special offering every week, and the more that you give, the more that your sacrificial gifts will purify you now. And you'll be able to work days or years off of your sentence. And you know what? To make things even better, we're going to give you an official tax receipt that shows you how much you've saved. You'll be purchasing merit for yourself, which will get you into heaven sooner. And by the way, coming back to your dead loved ones, you can do the same for them. You can make an offering in their name, and you'll save time for them as well. So every time that your cash clings into the plate, souls will spring into heaven. So get your wallets ready. We're going to be doing some cosmic spiritual work today. Or so you'd have been taught in many churches and by many preachers 500 years ago. There are some partial truths in what I just said, but they are horribly mixed with lies. So the whole thing is a, a load of cattle manure. I hope you can sense it stink. 
If you are here for the first time, you're like, what did I just walk into? <laughs> See, 500 years ago, the, the Roman Catholic Church was selling indulgences, which were basically get-out-of-purgatory-not-free cards. All right, You could pay money to take time off of what you or your relatives would spend in purgatory or a purifying place before heaven. We might wonder, if you hear that, you're like, how did people ever believe that or go along with that? But I wonder, how would they have ever known otherwise? Right? They, didn't, they couldn't just open their Bibles and see what God actually said about things. They didn't have the Bible written in their own language that they could understand. And so, religious leaders of the day were rarely questioned. Their teachings were basically just assumed to be true. Thankfully, though, some dared to question. Some boldly challenged what was going on. And God used even the abuse of indulgences to stoke the fires of reformation. Most actually would describe that controversy about indulgences as the straw that broke the camel's back, leading to the Reformation. Interesting fact, though. The Reformers' main issue with the indulgences, indulgences didn't have to do with the severity of our sin, or the necessity of punishment, or the reality of God's judgment. See, while we believe purgatory was off-base and unbiblical, hell is not. The Reformers' main concern had to do with merit. To, to do with our ability to earn God's favor. Which is just as major of an issue today, even if no one is trying to sell it to you. In our minds, we tend to think of all, there are all kinds of ways that we can, or all kinds of things that we can do to make God love us more. Right? Whether going to church, or giving more money, or serving in ministries, or whatever. We can say a prayer, we can get baptized, we can join a church, we can, we can even help, help out the poor and the needy. We think that we can somehow balance the scales of good and evil in our hearts. Maybe even tip the scales a little bit toward the good. We can make wrongs right, we imagine. Even if we don't believe that those things save us, we still think that we can earn something from God by doing these things. But can we? That's the million-dollar question. Can we? What does God actually say about this? Where is our true hope found in this life or in the afterlife? I hope that we can re rediscover that today, together. The Protestant Reformation rediscovered a number of crucial doctrines 500 years ago, which have come to be summarized as the five solas. Sola is Latin for alone. Today, I think we can use a fresh awakening to these truths, because even if we still believe and teach and preach them, many of us are likely so familiar with them that we've lost our wonder about them. We've lost our awe. So, and this is never truer, I believe, than with the sola we're going to study today, sola gratia, or, or grace alone. Grace alone. So let's pray 
that God would reawaken our hearts to his grace today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do need you today as we have sung. We need you every hour, and this hour is no exception. We need you to come and speak to us. We believe you are already here with us, but would you move powerfully in our hearts today? Where there is blindness, I pray that you would open our eyes to see. Where there is hardness, please soften us to receive. And God, may you be glorified in the way we respond to what we hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So please grab your Bible or a Bible nearby and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. I could probably have you turn to literally anywhere in Scripture to talk about this subject, to talk about grace. Not that I'm that observant or impressive. Grace is that pervasive in these pages. It's everywhere. The first two chapters of Ephesians, though, are some of the most majestic in the whole Bible. In chapter 1, Paul began his address to the believers in Ephesus this way. In verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He then basically goes on a rant about many of the blessings that God has blessed us with. How he chose us, how he made us holy and blameless, how he loved us, predestined us, adopted us. And he did all of this, why? Look at verse 6 in chapter 1. He did all of this to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. So he has blessed us with grace so that his grace would be praised. It then says that that Christians are redeemed, we're forgiven. Verse 7 says we're forgiven according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Continues, He keeps going though. He keeps saying we've been given an inheritance, sealed with the Holy Spirit. Again, more examples of God's lavish grace. And all this leads... Paul to just burst into Thanksgiving at the end of chapter 1. It was very fitting for today on Thanksgiving. Look at verse 16. We'll read from there. It says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Wow! Immediately after this glorious prayer, Paul becomes a Debbie Downer. It's like, Jesus, 
immeasurably great power, raised from the dead to God's right hand, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion above every name that is named. You, on the other hand, <laughs> were dead. Wah, wah. Look at verse 1 in, in, in chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And we might think, wow, what a crash, right? Why does Paul just turn on a dime and become so negative here? I think it's because in order to show how amazing grace really is, he has to show us where we came from. He's like, you know, let's back up a little bit. I'm getting ahead of myself with all this glorious talk because you weren't always so gloriously saved. And, he, and I propose that if we don't go here first, we'll never understand God's grace. So here's what I believe we learn here as our first main point for today. That by nature, we are in a hopeless, powerless state of death. By nature, without God's grace, by nature we are in a hopeless, powerless state of death. Paul uses a number of different pictures here to describe our natural state. He says that we once walked in sin. It, like, following the course of this world, he says. So, my picture, golfers walking a golf course. Or rats following the course of a maze. Going wherever the world tells us to go. That we should go. He says that we followed the prince of the power of the air. That is the devil. It's like a, a puppy follows his master. Like disciples followed Jesus. We followed Satan. He says then that we were sons of disobedience. That we were born into a human family of sin. And that we once lived among other children of sin, like neighbors and roommates, because we were just like them. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of my, mankind. We were like everyone else. Whatever we wanted to do, we did. We sought to fulfill every passion, every desire of our bodies and minds, and that showed that we were in the same boat as the rest of humanity. We were children of wrath, destined to face God's judgment. And what got us into that state? Paul says this was by nature. We were born that way. Perhaps the most powerful picture, though, is the first one. That we were dead in sin. Not injured. Not misguided. Not ignorant not victimized, not corrupted, 
dead. Sometimes we may imagine God saving us like we were involved in a a boat crash or a shipwreck. And we're floating on the water, trying to stay afloat, at the risk of drowning, when a, a coast guard drives up in his boat and someone throws us an inner tube or a life preserver, and we reach out and grab it, and then we're pulled to safety. Only one problem with this picture, and that's our ability to grab the life preserver. Biblically speaking, a more accurate picture would have us at the bottom of the sea. Right? We are not struggling to stay afloat. We're drowned. A, a bloated corpse. What Jesus does is he dredges our body up from the bottom and then resurrects us. That's the biblical picture. But where we start is we're dead. Sin is very real, and sin is very sinister. It's not something to laugh about, to treat lightly. Sometimes our our main three spiritual enemies are listed as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you can see all three here in those first three verses. We follow the world, we follow the devil, and we live in our flesh. So we we are willingly in league with our worst enemies who would seek to destroy us would destroy us. We think, oh, come on, it's not that bad. Right? Most sins seem relatively harmless. So, as long as we're not hurting anyone, what could actually be wrong with what we do? But that doesn't take a couple important things into account. First, sin is more than just what we do. Sin is a deep-seated natural condition. It's a deadly orientation which has us cemented in our opposition towards our Creator. And that leads to two, that our sin, all sin, by nature, hurts someone. Every sin hurts someone. If it doesn't hurt another person, which many of them do, they definitely hurt ourselves, and most importantly, it offends our holy and loving God. There is always at least one offended party, and he is the worst possible party to offend in the entire universe. If you went out and purposely tripped someone on the street, on the sidewalk, you'd be a a cruel jerk, might be yelled at, But say you went out and found a way to trip up Queen Elizabeth. Make her fall. You'd pay big time. We've all harmed the all-loving heart of Almighty God. And we all deserve hell for our crimes. Carl Truman comments, he says, In churches, the gospel is often presented as a means of self-fulfillment. If we attend church in order to feel good about ourselves or to learn some tips on how to live better, then we are missing the point. Such attitudes indicate that we see the human problem as one of human psychology or of a lack of knowledge. We fail to see where the real issue lies. 
Our basic problem is not that we have low self-esteem. It is not the myriad problems that affect ordinary people on a day-to-day basis. Grim jobs, failing marriages, unhappy home situations. It is that in Adam we have all sinned, that we stand guilty before a holy God, and that our hearts in themselves are committed to rebellion against him and his rule. That's the real issue. And so, like Ephesians 2, 3 says, we are children of wrath. A day of reckoning is coming for us all. Each one of us will stand before God one day. And if that just sounds like a fantasy to you, I'm very afraid for you. Because if as we believe that a holy God does exist, He cannot let evil go unpunished. And we all have evil in our hearts. What happens after we die? Most people don't like to even think about that question. So we ignore it. Or we pick an answer that makes us feel best and we go with that. You know, like... We can't know for sure, so I'm not going to worry about it. Or, I believe that this life is all there is, so I think we'll just cease to exist. Makes you feel better. Or, if an afterlife does exist, then I'm sure it's something nice or pleasant. So we try to live in the moment, and we ignore the distant future. But, What if it isn't the distant future? What if it's today? Tomorrow? What if you die prematurely? What if life goes by fast? And that day is here before you know it. And you stand before a holy, powerful, just God, having lived your life in open rebellion to Him, having broken just about every single one of His laws, having deeply offended Him. What is going to happen then? James Montgomery Boyce says, People today cannot imagine God to be a God of judgment. Of course, they are irrational in this, as they are in other spiritual matters. Ours is an evil world. All sins are not judged in this world, nor are all good deeds rewarded. The righteous do suffer. The guilty do go free. If this is a moral universe, that is, if it is created and ruled by a moral God, then there must be a reckoning hereafter in which the tables are balanced out. It's coming. And no matter how good you think you are, you're not. None of us are exempt here. Romans 3 tells us that all are under sin, that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And Boyce explains that from God's point of view, human beings have no righteousness at all. None, that is, that will satisfy him. We may be righteous in our own eyes, yeah, sometimes even in the eyes of other people, if they don't know us too well, but we do not have any genuine righteousness at all. 
The news gets worse, if you can believe it. If we're dead in sin, dead people can't raise themselves from the dead. It's impossible. Can't do it. And that's what these verses in Ephesians imply. That we are in a hopeless, powerless state of being. We are incapable of grabbing that inner tube. This is what Martin Luther, he talked about this and he called it the, the bondage of the will. Carl Truman explains that the dead men tell no tales, nor do they do anything else. If the human existential and religious problem is death, then only an external action on the part of someone more powerful than death can actually resolve the difficulty. That's what we need. See, contrary to what, what our world teaches us, all things are not possible for us. No matter how much the sea calls to you, no matter how much wind in, your sa- in the sail stays behind you, we can't do everything. We have limits. Right? And, and opportunities that we have are limited. We may assume that if God exists, we'll always have an opportunity to make things right. Like, if it eventually proves necessary, I'll take care of it then. No. By nature, we are dead set against God. We will never choose Him over the sin that we want more. Guaranteed. We will never come to Him unless He first does a miracle in our heart. Now, some may think, well, that doesn't really sound fair. What we read doesn't sound fair. That God would choose some people and not others. We've got to be really careful what we wish for. Because if everything were fair, no one would be saved. If God was required to save everyone, or to give everyone an equal, exactly equal chance, that wouldn't be grace. That grace would be impossible. If God was only righteous and just, and not loving and gracious as well, then all of humanity would be justly condemned for their crimes. I've spent so much time on this beginning negative portion of the message. Because... It is understanding the nature of our sin that makes grace so amazing. And if God's grace fails to excite you, then maybe you've never understood your sin's horror. Because it is horrible. It is infinitely hurtful, and it does deserve hell. And by nature, there's nothing we can do about it. We're in a hopeless, powerless state of death. But, but, look at the next two words in Ephesians 2, in verse 4. But God. But God. In my opinion, those are the two most beautiful words throughout Scripture. But God. It's our prior state that makes this reality so stunning. By nature, we are dead in sin, but by grace alone, God raises us to a state of love, mercy, and glory. By grace and by grace alone, God raises us to a state of love, 
mercy, and glory. Let's see how Paul says this. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now the end of verse 5 there is, is really the heart of this passage. Just by grace you have been saved. That little comment sums up everything else that Paul was describing. So going through this, list that he gives us. God wasn't just merciful. It says he was rich in mercy. God wasn't just loving, but he says he had great love with which he loved us. At the start of this passage, we were dead. Verse 5 says he made us alive. He brought us back to life. Verse 7 also talks about the incredible kindness that God showed through Jesus. But His mercy and love and life and kindness are all really just expressions of His grace. If you don't know what grace means, it means undeserved favor. Unmerited favor. Undeserved favor. It means receiving anything good that we haven't earned. So, Did we have enough redeeming qualities that we earned God's mercy? We spat in God's face. Do we deserve to have Him love us like He does? Is it only fair that we're resurrected to new life? Have we been so noble Or have we worked up enough merit to ensure that God is going to be kind to us? No, we haven't earned anything except wrath from God. So anything that He gives us is grace. And He hasn't just sprinkled us us with grace, throwing us a bone or two. It says He has lavished us with grace. He's lavished us with so much grace that we can't even fathom it. Look at verse 7. It says, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The immeasurable riches of His grace. We sing amazing grace. But are you actually amazed? Does the fact that God chose to love a wicked little sinner like you captivate you? Because grace is often so familiar to us, it doesn't tend to enthrall us at all. And so, J.I. Packer has said that amazing grace for many people has become boring grace. We're more fascinated by when Eric Carlson is going to make his return to the senator's lineup. Or cutesy Pinterest ideas. Or what, what filter we're going to use on our latest selfie. Or who's going out with whom now. 
Or what are we going to eat for lunch? Talk about grace. And our eyes glaze over. We shrug and think, oh, that's nice. Grace isn't nice. Grace is astonishing. Grace is mind-blowing. Okay? Grace might even sound offensive to you. Grace is discombobulating. Okay? It messes with our categories of fairness and entitlement and earning. So the, the question then becomes, why are we so indifferent to grace? Why does it become boring to us? J.I. Packer suggests that we regularly fail to really feel four key truths. First, the sinfulness of sin. Second, God's judgment. Third, man's spiritual inability. And fourth, God's sovereign freedom. Now, we talked about those first three under our first point. Sin, judgment, and our spiritual inability. So what does Packer mean by God's sovereign freedom? What that essentially means is that God is free to do whatever he wants to do. He is free to do whatever he wants to do. See, which means that God doesn't need to show grace to anyone. We don't have a right to grace. He is not obligated to us in any way. Some think... Of course God will forgive. That's his job. (laughs) If God wanted to have all of our lungs stop pumping air right now, that would be entirely within his right to do. It would be justified. And yet... His freedom also means that if he wants to, he can do the opposite of that and show grace. God told Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And remarkably, this is what God has freely chosen to do for many undeserving sinners. By grace alone, God raises us to a state of love, mercy, and glory. And did you notice how Scripture here in Ephesians 2 says that he does this? How does God raise us to the state of grace? Paul really stresses this over and over. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So, question, how are we raised from the dead? With Christ. Right? Which means that when Jesus died and rose again, something happened to us, too. In scripture, if we're saved, Scripture says that, that God has united us with Christ. That he sees us as one now. So what Jesus did is now applied to us. We then die with Christ and are raised with Christ. And therefore, follow this, our sins, which we talked about earlier, our sins which do need punished, were punished 
on the back of Christ. And all the things that we deserve, death, judgment, wrath, were borne by Him. In Jesus' death and resurrection, He is given what we deserve and we are given what He deserved. It's crucial that we see grace in light of these events because grace isn't God ignoring sin. It's not. It isn't God pretending that we never did anything wrong. It's grace is God dealing with sin. Making a solution for sin in a very costly way. Grace may be free to us, but only because it was infinitely costly for Christ. And if that grace expressed in Christ, in his death and his resurrection, isn't enough for you, the story doesn't come close to ending there. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. So when Christ ascended to heaven, it says we went with him spiritually. So we've, got, we've already got a reservation in heaven because we're united with Christ. He raised us up with him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In our our union with Christ, we are seated with Him in heaven on a throne in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in Christ again, in a place of absolute splendor and majesty, glory. Why has God given us all this grace now? So that one day he can show us even more. Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We haven't seen the beginning of it. And it's all because of Jesus who came from the Father full of grace and truth, is what he's done for us. Listen, if if the Bible speaks truth, then the grace of Christ is our only hope. It's our only hope. And this is what the Reformers sought to reemphasize 500 years ago. It wasn't grace and our efforts. It wasn't grace and sacraments. It wasn't grace and indulgences. It's grace alone. Sola gratia. In our day, we may need to to affirm that it's not grace and religious activities. It's not grace and moral behavior. Being good. It's not grace and being a nice person. It's not grace and and killer strategies for spiritual growth. We cannot endear ourselves to God or make Him have favor on us on our own. And Boyce says, 
when the Reformers spoke about grace alone, they were saying that sinners have no claim upon God, none at all, that God owes them nothing but punishment for their sins, and that if he saves them in spite of their sins, which he does in the case of those who are being saved, it is only because it pleases him to do it, and for no other reason. After all that, we may be amazed that we could be saved. We should be, and hope we are. We may also be thinking, though, so what do we do then? What's our part to play in this? Does it even matter what we do? To answer, yes, it matters what you do. Okay, we're not robots. You do have a part to play. However, what we have to understand here is that even the response God wants from us is only possibly because of grace. The response that God wants from us is only possible because of His grace. We are given an opportunity to have faith in Him and be saved. But as Truman says, even faith itself is an act of God's grace, bound up in Christ. One believes because one has been given faith as a gift of God's grace. And this is, Paul says this very thing in the, in the famous concluding verses in our passage for today. In verse 8, you can look with me. He repeats what he said in verse 5, but then he adds to it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now question, what is it that is not our own doing there? It's the faith through which we're saved. So our faith is a gift from God. Here's how I'm going to phrase the final point. By faith, we receive God's grace so that we fulfill our purpose. We're going to get to that last part there. By faith, we receive God's grace so that we then do good and fulfill our purpose. I love how the message paraphrases verse 8. It says, saving is all God's idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It is God's gift from start to finish. Faith is really how we open our hands and receive the gift that's already been offered to us. It's already been bought for us in his blood. So if, if, we, if you hear of God's grace today and you think, I want that. I want that. And the answer for you is, have faith. And you receive it. There are always two sides to true saving faith. Turning from sin and repentance and turning to Christ in belief and trust in Him. And if you come to understand your sin and God's grace, you are called by the Word of God to have faith in that. If God has graciously opened your eyes to the depths of your wickedness, you are called to repent, to resolve, to to cease from your rebellion against God. Kill whatever sins you can kill. And if God has graciously opened your eyes to the depths of His love, His grace for you in Jesus, what Jesus has done for you, believe in that. Trust that that's true. Cling to it. Believe that he died and rose in your place. 
Martin Luther, the great reformer, explained the response God wants from us this way. The whole task of Paul and his Lord is to humiliate the proud and bring them to a realization of this condition, to teach them that they need grace, to destroy their own righteousness so that in humility they will seek Christ and confess that they are sinners and thus receive grace and be saved. Nothing we can do not even conjuring up some spectacular faith can save us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. But we can't do it ourselves. And that's the way God designed it. And I don't blame Him. Because I know me. And I know that if I could take credit for something, I would. If I could take credit for anything, I would. If I were even given a little bit of credit, I'd probably run around bragging about it. We'd probably all do that. It would give us a reason to feel superior to other people around us. At least we did this and you didn't. But God doesn't want us boasting. If we're saved, we're still not superior to anyone else. If anything, we should be more humbled by the grace God gives us. And so we don't boast. And just in case you think this would all lead to, lead to us being inactive or passive or lazy, think again. Look how Paul finishes up in verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship... Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what this says is that we were specially created by God as his workmanship to show off his glory. We're his works of art. And we were given a purpose in that. We were created for good works. We were created to do good works. See, so many people on earth, either by actual conviction or by just assumption, believe that we will be saved by either being good people or doing good things. We just assume that naturally. And that's good. that taps into something that's really true. We are supposed to be good. We're supposed to do good. We were created for this purpose. However, we got the order wrong and that messes it all up. We're not saved by being good. We're saved to do good. And that's the crucial distinction. So if you take God's grace as an excuse to sit back and get lazy, you get God's grace wrong. God's grace to us should inspire us to live for Him more than ever before, but we work from a state of grace rather than working to attain more grace from God. Do you get that? We work from a state of grace rather than working to attain more grace. Besides, did you notice? We can't even take credit for the good things we do after we're saved. Verse 10 again, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So every good work you do in life, 
God prepared it for you to do. So, both our faith and our works come from God. We can't take any credit for it. So think of that next time you're thanked for serving in a ministry. It's an evidence of God's grace that you served in that way. When you give sacrificially to help someone in need, that's God working through you. When you say something to encourage a brother or sister in Christ, grace helped you. And when you, when you show hospitality or compassion or generosity, those are signs of grace. And so, may we humble ourselves out of our arrogance of thinking that we are spiritual stars. That going to be further from the truth. There is only one star in our stories. May we have faith to believe that God's great grace is available to us, even wretches like us. May we notice how His grace is powerfully given to us every single day, offered to us anew. May we then work hard for God's glory every chance we get because we've been saved. And may we worship God in thanksgiving, in awe, that He would look on us and despite our sin, choose to love us, show us mercy, kindness, give us life. John Bunyan once said, Blessed is such a one to whom the Lord gives grace, True grace, for that is a certain forerunner of glory. And he is going to get the glory for that. So let's rejoice, not for ourselves, not because of ourselves, but because of God's grace alone. Let's pray. God, help us to receive this. I know it can be hard to accept grace. It can be hard to accept love, despite what we would think, because we're proud, and we think we can do it ourselves. Lord, we come to you and we confess our great need for you this morning. Open our eyes to your love for us. May we worship you with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, and all of our strength. For you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.